Welcome to Positive Disintegration, a path to authenticity. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Dabrowski through the lens of youth. And we're going to be speaking to Lance Johnson, who's a college student who studied the theory of positive disintegration and will speak to us through the lenses of someone who is young, overexcitable and gifted. Now, a content warning exists on this episode, so we will be talking about some rather dark topics and subject matter, so that includes things like suicidal ideation and depression. So if you are sensitive to those particular topics, please be warned and take care of yourself. Hello listeners, welcome back to another episode of Positive Disintegration. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson, and with me is co-host, Dr. Chris Wells. Hi, Chris. Hi, Emma. Nice to see you again. How are you? You too. Um, I'm a lot better. <laughs> As you know, I've had the, the damn Rona, so that's been a fun week. Um, and I'm feeling a lot better and I'm happy to be back doing a podcast and something I love. I'm glad that you're feeling better. And yeah, it's great to be back and recording again. We did take like a three-week break. So, well, it was nice to have a break too, to be honest. It's always good to have a break, even if it's from something you like, because it refreshes you and sort of resets you, I think. That's right. And I was at camp. Yeah, I was at UNASA this month. Um, and that's part of why we took a break from recording. And it was wonderful to be there with the kids and, and the adults. And I miss them already. And it would have been good for you to be exposed to a bunch of young minds and new perspectives on things. It was wonderful. Yeah, it was really great. And it's kind of on topic because our guest today is a young college student. And so it's going to be nice to get a fresh perspective on Dabrowski's theory. Exactly. That is totally what I had in mind when I invited Lance to join us. So for our listeners, today's guest is Lance Johnson, and Lance is a college student in Steamboat Springs in Colorado who's been studying Dabrowski's theory for the past few years. So welcome to the podcast, Lance. Thanks. It's really good to be here. Yeah, we're so glad to have you with us, Lance. Um, So Lance is Tina Harlow's son. That's how we met. And I've known him for three years. Um, I met him when I came to visit here in Steamboat three years ago. And what we discovered while we were talking is that we have so much in common. Lance has overexcitabilities that really remind me of mine, especially his imaginational process. And so I wanted to have him on the podcast to talk about his experiences of overexcitability, giftedness, positive disintegration, because he's studied the theory for the past few years, as Emma said in the intro. And so we're excited to talk with you because I mean, no offense to our guests, but we haven't had many young voices. And so we're happy to have you here. Yeah, no, I, like I said, I'm really excited to, uh, to share and just to, yeah, have a good conversation. So to kick us off, kind of to talk about how your mind works and, you know, so what it was like to like live in a rural area, to be gifted and have this experience of overexcitability and not have like mirroring from other peers? Yeah, totally. I mean, um, I mean, going way back, like from a really young age, I was really, 
really into reading, like uh, especially like fantasy and fiction. It you know it would really put me in my own world. I would like kind of start off with the the world or the um, yeah in the books that I was reading, and then my imagination would kind of build off from that like platform um, and kind of tie it into my own experiences. And it really um, yeah it was it, it really fed into my imagination then. Um, a big piece of that is that my imagination is largely verbal. Like I don't have a very strong visual imagination, but I do get a lot of like, most of my thoughts are out loud and in like other people's voices. And so that also meant that from a really young age, I was pretty good at language, um, good at reading, um, always pretty good at communicating, always had a lot of questions, always really curious and wanted to learn new things, especially like with that imaginal portion, I wanted to like know if the things I was imagining could be real um, and things like that. Um, but then, yeah, as Chris mentioned, I grew up not outside of Steamboat Springs, Colorado, as a matter of fact, which is even more rural. Um, uh, it's a school, K through eight, K through eight school um, that I went to had like a hundred kids throughout the entire um, kindergarten through eighth grade. And so, you know, having this pretty different um, internal experience from the people around me. It was, yeah, I, I always knew that I was really different from my peers. Um, it started out when I was younger as having like, um, you know, it'd be a compliment, like, you know, oh, you're really smart. Um, but as it grew and grew, I think, you know, it people became maybe more jealous or just like understood that I was different and that we didn't necessarily uh, relate as closely as, you know, the other kids that you know, may have been more similar to one another. Um, so I always felt pretty isolated there. And then um, I'm also, I'm also gay. And I think I knew that when I was younger, but it didn't really like come into my consciousness until I was in late middle school. Um, but again, I was in a really rural area, really small school. Um, so for the people, you know, everyone knew pretty much as soon as I did. And um, those that didn't support me made that very clear um, from the get-go. So there was definitely a lot of feelings of otherness and just being really different from my peers. So that was really hard for me. And mentioning, uh, as Chris mentioned, the imaginational portion, um, I also had a pretty dark imagination, especially as I got further on into the middle school years. Um, and it really scared me. Like I, I thought there was something deeply wrong with me. In fact, I uh, actually thought I was like a sociopath or like destined to become a serial killer in middle school because I was having these like, um, you know, thoughts about like murder and like horrific things about the people I love and about my friends at school. And I really, I didn't understand that that was just, it was more just my imagination kind of um, riffing off my environment as opposed to an actual desire that I had inside of me. So for a lot of my early teen years, I really um, was pretty disgusted with myself and thought there was something really deeply wrong with me. Yeah, that really resonates with me. Um, I also experienced that when I was, I, I want to say between like 13 and 14 years old, yeah. where I thought a lot about death, not only my own death, but other people's death, like murder, and certainly thought that there was something wrong with me and mm -hmm. that it was a personal failing, a character flaw, and also felt like that dissatisfaction with myself around it. And so, right. you know, it's, it's really interesting to talk about these things and see how these early like dynamisms operate in your life. Yeah, no, that was, 
again, I also had, yeah, the dissatisfaction and some guilt and shame around it just because a lot of it, I mean, even it, some of those imaginations were like me doing those horrific things or uh, one I often had was like running away from home, even though I had like a good home life, but I had like this long running fantasy of just going out into the woods and leaving everything behind, not leaving a note or, you know, stuff like that. And it just, I, yeah, I felt mostly a lot of like guilt and shame around that, that I was thinking these things about like hurting the people that I loved or trying to escape the people I loved, even though I really had nothing to escape from. Um, and so, yeah, no, I, a lot of those, yeah, low level dynamisms from a young age. Yeah, it's interesting to think about your mental imagery and how much it impacts your life. If it tends to be dark like that, then it can really bring you on a bad path. And I know personally, I've said this to you before, that you're so ahead of where I was at your age because you have come to learn these things about yourself and you have the theory kind of as a guide at this point. But when I was your age, I was still really struggling with my imagination. And like I it still felt so imposed on me and not like something that was within my control. Even there was so much uh, intrusive imagery and thoughts. And I know that you Mm -hmm. also experienced like intrusive imagery. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's something that I still really deal with. I would say, um, I can't remember exactly when this started, but sometime in that middle school area, um, you know, I started getting like feeling really depressed and I actually, um, around eighth grade thought I was bipolar because I would have these feelings of like being really depressed for a long time. And then for whatever reason, it would lift. and I would just feel this like real, really manic energy and really um, ecstatic and happy. But when I was in those depressed states, I would have just these thought loops of things like you should go kill yourself or, you know, nobody likes you or you're a terrible person. And a lot of like kind of going back to that imagination, like creative ways of suicide, almost like how to do it in a outlandish and and kind of original way. And again, like it it was intrusive, like and I still experience those thoughts, um, you know, particularly if I'm having a kind of a rough day, but sometimes they just kind of come out of the blue of like, Oh, you should go kill yourself. And it, it took me a really long time for me to realize that like, it's not my, you know, ego thinking that like I'm thinking it, but it's not a thought that I identify with as a person and as a concept. And it, it really took me a long time for me to realize that and to escape it because for, as I was feeling those thoughts, I mean, all I wanted to do was to escape it or to self-harm um, in one way or another. And it, yeah, it, it was leading me down, like you said, a pretty dark kind of dangerous path. Well, I'm glad that it's, it's gotten better. That's mm-hmm. for sure. And I would say the same thing for myself where I, it's gotten so much better in like adulthood at least, or the more mm-hmm. I become aware of it, that you don't have to identify with your thoughts or your feelings. You can right. just let them go it's a big deal. Totally. Yeah, no, I, the fact, I don't know when I, it probably would have been um, maybe a a year or two after I first met you and I'd really kind of wrap my mind around the theory a little bit more. Um, But yeah, like if I do have those suicidal thoughts or something, I immediately kick in with, no, that's not the case at all. Like I've loved my life. I have so many reasons to be grateful and I live in a beautiful place and, you know, maybe I'm even happy right now. And there's just a a small part of my brain that's, um, you know, having these suicidal thoughts. And I 
like you said, I don't have to identify with them. Emma, I think I have to assume that some of this is resonating with you as well. Yeah, it is. Uh, particularly, and I didn't really think about it until you just mentioned it, Lance, but the whole fantasizing about running away from my life. And when you've got a rich imagination, you go into all the details about what am I going to pack and where am I going to go and what's my new life going to look like? And it sort of explodes in your mind. And what I wanted to ask you um, was about your experience, particularly when you're young, like being able or unable maybe to make that separation between those thoughts and those feelings and those imaginings and your actual life. So like for you, what was the process to be able to start making that separation? That's a a really good question. I'd say a lot of it probably did hinge um, on the theory. Um, And I mean, as Chris mentioned, like, you know, my mom is um, involved in the theory. She's involved in like the, you know, therapy, psychology kind of world anyway. So it was good that I had that person that could, you know, kind of explain some of these things to me if I, you know, opened up about them and she could kind of help tell me about it. Um, But yeah, I wouldn't say it was probably after high school started, maybe even like midway through high school that I really like kind of unidentified with it. And no, even late, I mean, obviously things fluctuate, nothing, nothing's perfect, but I, um, I would say it wasn't even until like COVID hit maybe that I really, you know, had some time to spend with myself. And I realized that, you know, I don't necessarily, I don't really have like, I don't identify with the term mental illness and I don't really, you know, I have behaviors and tendencies that some people might label as bipolar or ADHD or, you know, even obsessive compulsive, like different, different symptoms there um, match different uh, diagnoses. But I really realized that, no, I'm, I'm just me. And I can really choose which parts of my mind and my imagination I can identify with and uh, which ones really aren't serving me. Um, so yeah, I would say actually about COVID is when it went from an intellectual thing where like I knew of the theory and knew what it meant and what it was saying to actually experiencing the theory and kind of doing that like auto psychotherapy and kind of talking myself out of some of those really dark thoughts and ideas. I do want to talk with you about are the the ways that you have um explored and used auto psychotherapy you know in self-education in your life because I happen to know that you (laughs) have done a lot of of your own inner work and a lot of you've like drawn on a lot of different resources to to help yourself yeah I think um yeah the theory has been a big part of that and also like some spirituality has been a big part of that too is um, particularly like Buddhist ideas and like non-duality and things like that of um, things aren't always black and white. And if I really see my reality as, because that, that's a trap that I fall into real, fairly often is if I'm feeling sad, like it's the end of the world, it's terrible, like nothing will ever be okay again. Or if I'm happy, then that's it. Like this is this is the breakthrough moment for me. And I'm never going to have another like issue, never going to have another down moment. And then, but I really have to catch myself in those thoughts. Um, 
And, you know, sometimes I do better with that than others, but, and really tell myself that, nope, like every second is a new second with a new opportunity for me to be the person that I want to be. And that I have to kind of separate myself from those really extremist um, perceptions of my reality and that things are a lot more nuanced than I thought they would be Mm -hmm. um, or that I may think they are. A lot of it centers around like acceptance too, like really, you know, there's going to be thoughts that are looping kind of obsessively in my head over and over. And, you know, there may be ways to distract yourself from it, but at a certain point, you know, if you're laying in bed or whatever it is, you kind of just have to say, okay, like, this is just how my mind is right now. Um, and there isn't a whole lot I can do to change it. Um, so you can, yeah, kind of just sit with it. And what I found is the more you confront those thoughts and accept them and say, this is just what my brain is doing right now, the quicker those thoughts dissipate. Like the more thinking back to like early high school, I really tried to run away from the thoughts and feelings that I was having. And the more I tried to run away from them, it seemed like the closer they got to catching up with me. And um, it made it so much more intense and painful when those thoughts and feelings did catch up with me because I had spent so much time time trying to escape them that it was like this big tidal wave coming up behind me and as soon as I stopped running it just it it would hit me from behind so yeah trying to catch those thoughts before it becomes that tidal wave has been a big part of my process that makes sense when you you talked about acceptance and I know when I was around your age uh, a big part for me um, in accepting those sorts of darker thoughts was finding other media that kind of reflected how I felt about things. So I realized that I wasn't such an anomaly. So for me, like I listen to a lot of heavy metal music, um, which people have preconceived notions about, but a lot of the lyrics revolve around sort of inner demons and dark feelings. Um, And I also read like Stephen King novels and, and stuff like that a lot when I was young and that helped me realize that, yeah, there are people out there with these dark imaginations thinking of these things and they're not necessarily serial killers, but it's okay to have those thoughts. Um, And so for me, media was a big sort of part of that acceptance. What I want to sort of ask you from your perspective being young today is, with social media, I see a lot of people like, you know, posing themselves on Instagram and stuff and trying to make their life look as bright and shiny as it can possibly be. Do you think that sort of has a different effect on you trying to cope through this now today um, than it probably had during Chris and my time? Yeah, um, I'm glad you mentioned Stephen King. Chris and I were just talking about um, yesterday, like how <laughs> that was something we had in common, like as um, as we got older, um, you know, like early teens. And yeah, a lot of like, you know, like no more emo music and like, you know, like you said, metal and just the songs about the darkness and stuff definitely did help me. Um, and yeah, seeing Stephen King was a, I think a huge part for me is that like, he is imagining those things. He has, you know, all of those horrific things that just make your gut wrench as you're reading them came from his mind. And it really was comforting for me to know that Stephen King wasn't a serial killer. He was a serial author and he really put all of those horrific things in his mind to good use. 
but then going back to your question, like with, with social media, um, I personally, like I, I've gotten off of Instagram. Um, I've never even gotten onto TikTok now because of that exact reason. Like I, I can't possibly like live up to those expectations that I see online. And it's exhausting for me to even like, think about trying, like, I, I don't want to put in the effort of like finding the perfect filter to make my skin look like glowingly radiant. I don't want to, you know, spend an hour trying to think of the perfect caption for my post or, you know, if I see a beautiful sunset, I don't want the first thought in my mind to be like, I need other people need to see this sunset. I need to catch it for other people. I really want to appreciate reality as I'm experiencing it without the need to um, tell other people. I think I'm fortunate in that I, I was able to see that for myself and get off of social media because I know a lot of people that I think are pretty negatively impacted by it. Um, but it's so addictive. Like it's so hard. Like that's why I got off Instagram because I would get on it and I would, my intent would be to, you know, just fill 10, 30 minutes scrolling. And the next thing I know, I'd look up from my phone and it's two hours later and I feel like shit. Like I, it's the same thing with TV. If I end up sitting and looking at a screen for like, you know, two, three hours, it doesn't feel good. That's not a kind of recreation that's leading to any sort of growth or self-satisfaction. It always just makes me feel like I've wasted three hours I definitely think I've been fortunate in that I have been able to recognize that from this age because I think a lot of people um, my age and a little bit younger are really inexorably pulled into that whole scene and that our whole society is trying to push us there and that, you know, the future of business and the future of everything is is on social media. It's a real problem. Mm -hmm. I talk with a lot of people who really struggle to get away from their phones and they spend a lot of time scrolling, scrolling, scrolling hours of their lives. And I try not to do that, but it's easy to get sucked into it. And so I think yeah. that you're smart to just cut yourself off from yeah. it. And I do want to say, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get up on my high horse. Like, I have Snapchat. And I spend far too many hours of the day, like, Snapchatting with people or, like, looking at the Snapchat stories that it gives me. Like, I won't claim <laughs> to be all, you know, holier than thou. But I at least can recognize that some social medias are a bit more addictive for me than others and also have a much more unrealistic like beauty standard and things like that. Like Snapchat for me is comedy usually or like cooking kind of stuff. Um, I don't do it just to like look at my friends and so much. Um, so I think that that's been helpful for me. Not to sound old, but I've only used Snapchat a couple of times. And so I <laughs> <laughs> I'm just now like learning about TikTok too. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, I it's like anything though. It's a it's a tool, and I think how you use it is important. Right. So if you're going on YouTube and spending hours like laughing at other people's misery and fails and stuff, that's one thing. But if you're going there to learn how to cook or do a DIY thing or something, then you, know, you can actually get something out of it. It's like a hammer. You can use a hammer to build something or to destroy something. Totally. That's right. Yeah. And I think that is one nice thing about like the kids that are growing up with social media, you know, we've kind of been able to learn to adapt to it a little bit. Um, it's our generation being able to grow up with um, those tools. Hopefully some of us, most of us will be able to learn how to use it as a tool 
um, in, in an effective way and not just in a destructive way. But then I also struggle, like, I don't fully feel like I'm using the tools to the, to their full benefit. Like I use social media as more of a relaxation tool or a kind of distraction tool. Um, and so I'm doing it less maybe than most of my peers, but I also know a number of my peers who are like pursuing their interests really um, closely on Instagram and their feed is filled with like, you know, if they're artists, it's the kind of art they're into or, you know, the, the careers they're interested in. Um, so I won't like hate on all social media. Cause like you said, it's, it is a tool. And for the people that learn how to use it effectively, I think it can be a really good tool. Um, but it's so hard to use it effectively because there's so many people um, whose sole motivation is to try to extract capital out of you and get you on there as much as possible and seeing as many ads as possible. And, and having to be aware of that is, is really hard. You just, you reminded me that one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about that I think is really cool about you is that you've invested so much effort into learning about your special interests and one of the things we were talking about in preparation for this episode is how you use your imagination to imagine like how you're because you're into permaculture mm -hmm. and so like how your garden and backyard can be optimized and what you can grow back there and stuff so like yeah. do you want to say anything about that totally yeah so for those that don't know just a brief um introduction to permaculture it's really growing like food plants and medicinal plants in a way um, that is very counter our modern agriculture practice. It's trying to build soil, uh, build biodiversity, create food that's healthy um, for the people that are eating it, build a community around um, the around your agriculture operation. It's really a more holistic, like healthy way of trying to do that. Um, and so I, I really got into that again during COVID. And since then, since I've really started to learn more, um, that's where my imagination has gone. Like if I'm laying in bed right before I fall asleep, my mind is wandering off to like um, thinking about in our own backyard. Like if I had infinite money and resources, where would I plant this tree? What would I like, what construction operations would I do here? Would I move some soil? Would I, um, you know, put irrigation in certain places. Um, and sometimes, I mean, I really let it run wild and it's just imagine yourself a plot of land, perfect plot of land with all of these different things. Like how would I deal with my waste? A lot of what I think about now is like, you know, making use of like where to put a bathroom to create, to funnel it down into a, a tank where I can ferment it into methane to be used as cooking gas and creating like a whole system that really uses all of the outputs from myself and from existence and putting it back into a productive use, which is so much fun because there's infinite creativity there. There's so many different ways you can do it and so much information out there about how different people have done that. Like there's some people that compost their ways. There's some people that, like I said, they ferment it for methane and use that as cooking gas. There's people that maybe don't, they, they live on a property that had an existing plumbing system. And so they just use that. Uh, so I think it's just, there's a lot of opportunity to use that imagination um, in this particular field, which is really what drove me to it as a career. And I think uh, Dabrowski's theory is ultimately what led me to that place. Like I, I don't, I did not have a lot of hope 
for most of my um, teen years, like I, you know, about global warming and all of the horrific challenges that are facing our species and our, our world really. Um, and for most of my life, or maybe not most at this point, but for a lot of my life, my imagination was going to horrific ways the world was going to end and like um, out of control storms and disease and death just racing across the world. And it's been really cool to replace that with a career and dreams and goals that I know are going to help directly like help that those you know, terrible scenarios and help with global warming and help with food insecurity and inequality and lack of community and all of these issues that our society is facing. It's been really meaningful for me to know that like I can pursue what makes me feel happy and hopeful and what my own mind is best at instead of trying to be the little cookie cutter person like oh you're gifted you should go into college get some scholarships get you know this degree get a high paying job get nice and set up and then you can worry about like in your retirement going to go homestead and I decided no that's that's bullshit I want to do something that's going to make me happy and feel good about the things that I'm doing for the earth as soon as physically possible I think that's great it's amazing. It's been so cool to watch your process and, you know, watch your own like unfolding path. You were just sort of talking about those expectations of, you know, go to college, you know, white picket fence and all that sort of stuff, particularly knowing about a theory as you do. What are your thoughts on the impact of socialization, like particularly as a young person, because that's one of the things with the theory that you've got to do is you've got to, unravel all these things that have been put on you that aren't particularly your values but like you've been led to believe that they are um so for me coming to the theory later in life um I had to go down some pretty significant rabbit holes in order to undo some of that damage but what's your experience of actually trying to unwind the socialization before it sort of occurs to you yeah, that's that's a really hard one, especially going back to like social media and just the globalization that we have today. On the one hand, it's great because you can see tons of different people that are unique in so many different ways. And it's cool that you can see that there are a lot of different alternative ways of just being in the world. But then also, as you see just person after person after person in all of these different ideal worlds, it really does tell give you a uh, kind of preconceived notion of success and even like like the vast majority of my friends are really techy and I I'm tech savvy but like I said if I sit in front of a screen for like more than a couple hours I feel like physically sick mentally sick just not right um so a hard one for me is like knowing that about myself but also most of my friends, especially like gifted friends and stuff are really into video games and really into like tech stuff. And so trying to keep my sense of identity and trying not to force myself to be on a screen until I'm sick, just to try to fit in with people. Um, but then, and yeah, that's hard too. Like, cause I do know that in our society, we need to make money somehow. And that's something I haven't fully worked out like how I want to make income um and I know that like online kind of stuff might be the easiest way to do it and I haven't really reconciled my own um you know reactions and reality with uh 
with tech versus like the necessities of our life. Um, so that's been a hard one for me. And then going back to like my sexuality, especially in a rural area, um, I remember like, you know, there was definitely some homophobic comments made, but a big portion of the kind of the messaging I received from my peers, not from my parents, they've always been really supportive, but from my peers has been like, you can be gay, but don't make it obvious. Like, I don't want to know, you know, like be a, still be a man's man, just be, you know, just like men. And I, that's something that is really deeply ingrained in me. And I think is something that I, is a big part of what I'm working through right now is, um, you know, how, how my gender um, expression fits in and how for most of my child uh, early teen years, like I tried to make my voice sound deeper and tried to like do more masculine things and like work out more and do like things like that. Cause I was okay with myself being gay, but I didn't want to be like, yeah, I wanted to have the freedom to not be judged by everyone that anyone just looking at me wouldn't necessarily know that about me. Um, and so I, yeah, part of my, my work right now is to not care as much and to just be whoever I want every day and not, not try to act more masculine around guys or whatever it is. Yeah. The journey to authenticity is not easy. Mm-mm. It, well, it's like, it just feels like a constant peeling back of layers and like digging deeper and facing yourself and questioning it's it's tough oh yeah it's funny though because we've we've had this come up with previous guests as well that eventually though your authenticity is just gonna find you mm-hmm. whether you like it or not so I know from my experience being bi I thought I'm fine I'll just hide I'll just you know play mm-hmm. straight you'll be fine um and no one will know but it's not true because I talk to people later after I've sort of come out to them and they're like, yeah, we, we kind of knew. Like, um, yeah, ev- eventually it all sort of creeps up on you and, and you think that you're hiding and you think that you're masking, but eventually your authenticity is going to come to the surface and it's sort of that 50-50, Chris, as you were saying, it's a peeling back of layers and trying to discover it yourself. At the same time, it's kind of like almost leaking out like a sieve. Yeah, it's it's cool. Um, today I was at Steamboat's Pride um, Festival and I was thinking like as I was hanging out with um, the friends that I went with, like my voice does become like higher and more energetic and almost, you know, slight, slightly lispier or whatever um, when I'm with people that are really supportive and particularly girls oftentimes just because um, they, I think, bring some of that energy um, that with guys I kind of mask more and it's always such a euphoric experience like when I've been spending the whole day like talking all fast and high and excited like it really um it's kind of a like a manic feeling and I I do wonder about some of the in past experiences and thinking that I'm in like a manic cycle or depressed like I'd love to look back um a little more closely and see like maybe I'm hanging out with people that allowed me to be my more authentic self. And as a result, I felt, you know, a a much more ecstatic um, feeling. Um, So I, I, (laughs) I'm just now thinking about that. So I definitely want to look back and and, uh, think about that more deeply, but I I think it's probably true. Like I, I find when I'm hanging out with guys and, and I 
I mask well, like I'm very good at fitting into just about any social situation going back kind of the, I, since most of my thoughts are verbal, like, and it's oftentimes in other people's voices, it's very easy for me to like put on someone else's voice while I'm talking to them. I do it kind of subconsciously. Um, So when I'm hanging out with like some really laid back, like low voice dudes that are more conservative and like talk like this, um, I do feel a little bit more depressed and more just like shoved into, into myself and under the surface for sure. You're making me wonder about your visualization and the fact that you have like this more narrative thinking in your imagination. I know that one thing that we've talked about is kind of the mental rehearsal of imagination and imagining conversations, imagining how things might go in certain situations and, I'm not even sure like where I want to go with that, but I know that you can relate. No, totally. Like, yeah, that's always been a huge thing for me is like, sometimes it's a rehashing of thing of conversations that's already happened. Um, But uh, I I might even say the majority of the time it's like hypothetical uh, interactions, maybe with people that I know, but it could be like someone that's just straight out of my mind. And, um, you know, I hadn't necessarily met them before. But yeah, I definitely do a lot of that, like hashing out and practicing and, um, you know, repeating to myself what I'm going to say. And and then, you know, I'll run through a conversation scenario, maybe like 10 different times, 10 different ways and see how my imaginary like conversation partner reacts to each way and try to like find the best kind of fine tune the way I interact with the world. Um, And it's kind of a like I struggle sometimes particularly in like more romantic relationships in that I have the strong urge to escalate things really quickly. And I think a lot of that has to do with that rehashing in my head is like, you know, I'm imagining a scenario and we're like sitting and talking um, with this person that I'm interested in romantically. And then very quickly in my, in, you know, the mental scenario, it, it starts to go sexual. And then I think, you know, I I want that to be my reality or I expect that from someone else. And, you know, for the vast majority of people, that's not the case. Most people aren't just like, you know, at the touch of a button ready to go. And so it's been hard for me to remember that and to remember that, you know, my imagination is just that. And sometimes and fantasies are just that. And that reality is definitely um, different than your inner, inner experience. And I have to, yeah, deal with that. Right. That actually makes me think of another question that I wanted to ask you, which is just around, you know, did you ever find that you had trouble mixing truth and fiction kind of in your, you know, like mixing truth and fiction? That's one of the questions that like from the original, like overexcitability questionnaire, I think, but yeah, mixing truth and fiction is definitely one of the, um, key use here but yeah it's just like it's on the table of manifestations that's Mm -hmm. what it is like so it's one of the the phrases that michael has used um, Mm -hmm. when talking about imaginational overexcitability and so yeah i mean what's been your experience with that yeah a lot of it's like sometimes my relationships with other people like i you know someone who has all you know otherwise been like really nice to me um my my whole life I for some reason have this feeling that they're not you know that they're faking it and that they don't actually like me at all in fact I actually um 
kind of forgot about this through a significant, maybe like most of sixth grade, or maybe I shouldn't say most, but a good portion of sixth grade, I thought that I uh, had special needs, like that I was like developmentally delayed and that no one had told me and that everyone was just acting nice to me because like I was, you know, because I saw like other kids at the school that were like that. And I was like, oh, everyone's nice to me, kind of like that. Like, I wonder if, you know, just no one's told me that I've, you know, and then I realized, wait, no, I can do like, I can read a book faster than anyone else in my peer group. I can like, you know, if I do have a developmental delay, it's definitely not as intense as what I'm thinking I had. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of that, like some kind of a level of paranoia around relationships. Um, but then also like with identity too, you know, sometimes I'll think about myself and I'll be extremely like convinced that there is an aspect of myself or my identity that's like set in stone, that it's a clear part of who I am. And then the very next day, like, as I'm thinking about it or talking to someone about that realization, I'm like, wait, no, that's like exactly the opposite of how I really am or of how I usually feel. So yeah, it can be kind of a confusion of identity sometimes and a confusion of my relationship with other people, but usually not so much like reality itself around me. Although sometimes that is the case, especially when I was younger, I was always a convincing liar, sometimes not even knowing that I was lying. You know, I, I, I improv a lot when, when talking to people. And so sometimes someone would ask me a question or ask me why or whatever it is. And I just like kind of riff off whatever seemed to be the most plausible explanation for what I was thinking or saying, and kind of just cross my fingers and hope that I'm right. Or that if I am wrong, that no one's going to call me out on it. And uh, it works a little bit too often. (laughs) One thing I wanted to know was what was Lance's advice for other people around his age who might have overexcitabilities or they are trying to cope with them. So basically what are your hacks for dealing with it? Oh, that's that's a really good question. I'll probably have to think about that for just a second. I would say, um, find like-minded individuals. I think that that's a big part of it. Um, And not just like-minded in that don't hang out with people because they're who you want to be or because you think they're cool or, or things like that. Like find people and hang out with them because you think they're cool, like on a human level, because you relate to them. You guys have like similar experiences and, Um, you know, maybe similar hopes and dreams and things like that, because you can, it definitely helps to have someone that can relate a little bit more to your own experience, Um, especially people that feel, you know, their emotions more intensely, or that have that strong imagination portion, or, um, you know, become really uh, physically hyperactive, whatever, you know, your particular manifestation is, it, it can be really helpful to find someone who's similar because you're, you know, you'll be on the same wavelength a lot and the conversations are going to be more meaningful and the activities you guys choose to do together are going to be more meaningful because it's going to be something that both of you want to do and aligns with your own um, sense of self and the things that, you know, are really good for you. Um, So yeah, I would say find a good peer group and, and going back to kind of acceptance too, like don't, 
you're not a horrible person or there's nothing wrong with you. If you, you know, you may be weird, but that's not a bad thing, you know, <laughs> like uh, definitely be happy with what makes you unique and individual because that's, what's going to, you know, make, that's what's ultimately going to make you successful. Whatever your idea of success is, um, is going to be your uniqueness and individuality. Um, cause if you just try and fit in and be everyone else, then, um, you know, all those jobs, everyone else is taken like that. They're, they're already, um, that job is taken. So if you go and try and be like the same cookie cutter person that, that surrounds you, then you're going to end up realizing that there's far less room for you in the world that you've chosen than if you had just chosen to be yourself and you can really like fill the niche that you were meant to fill in society. Michael says that Dabrowski used to say, like, be authentic mm-hmm. and be empathic. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I hear you saying, like, kind of both of those things to some degree. Totally. Another thing that I just happen to know about you is, like, with your psychomotor overexcitability, I feel like you've done a good job of figuring out, like, how to mm-hmm. harness that and deal with it well. Yeah. I mean, that I largely attribute to martial arts. I I started Taekwondo in seventh grade and that has been huge for me, both as an outlet for like psychomotor overexcitability. I mean, just, you know, one to two hours twice a week of really intense, like exercise that really challenges my um, proprioception and figuring out where my hands are in relation to my body and how to move quickly, but also deliberately and um, having good balance and things like that. But then also being able to, as the need arises, still your body and kind of let the excitement and overexcitability sit for a second and then channel it later, you know, not necessarily feeding into every second that you're feeling this urge to go do something, but to kind of save it not to bottle it up and just let it bottle and bottle and bottle until something breaks, but to save it up to a more appropriate time. Um, So that, that really started my like kind of love of exercise. But since then, I mean, I, I love to bike and hike and I've um, started working out more recently, like at the gym. And that has been hugely helpful for me, both like on a chemical level, like endorphins and everything on a, um, just body image level. And then on the psychomotor level, like I feel much more calm and with it and less anxious um, in the rest of my reality when I've gotten that exercise and gotten that psychomotor excitability kind of out of my system. Sometimes like I really don't give into it. Like I try to, you know, if I'm getting really anxious in class, sometimes I'll get up and go around, but sometimes a lot of it is to just sit there and like focus on my breathing and sometimes even just fully tune out of class and be like, okay, like as, as overexcitable as I am right now, like I'm feeling antsy and ready to move. Maybe, you know, my, I'm not going to remember what's going to happen. What I'm not going to follow the class anyway right now. So I might as well just like kind of focus on my breathing, get myself back down to a more grounded space. And then from there I can decide, okay, no, I really need to go walk around the building or I can say, okay, I've reset myself and kind of put myself back at the task at hand. That was so me as a student walking around and Mm -hmm. not being able to sit easily in class. Yeah. And I, I still struggle to 
I think it's part of the reason I struggle with screens so much is I can't sit still for that long, but screens make me want to sit still for that long. So then I'm kind of just forcing my body to sit in a position that it really doesn't want to keep. Um, so I, I definitely have to make sure that I'm taking breaks from be it work, whether it's, you know, it may be productive, but sometimes it's also recreation and either way I need to, you know, every couple minutes or every half hour or so get up, move around, at least get a snack, maybe go outside. Definitely as you get older, a lot of, you know, the work is, is by yourself and finding what works for you. Um, but I definitely think it's really important to have like on a parental level, like being able to see in your kid, like those overexcitabilities. Like, I think that was really helpful for us as a family unit to know, like, you know, what each of our overexcitabilities was and that it wasn't something wrong with us. It wasn't lack of like self-control, um, that, that just, we all had different ways of being in the world and that, um, you know, we had to kind of accept that. So I think it it's definitely um, important for parents to see that. And even before you can really do a questionnaire, like they could, your kid could be two, but you can kind of tell, um, you know, what makes them tick, what makes them smile, what makes them like really energetic and, and things like that. And I think you can get a kind of a good idea um, of what your child needs and then trying not to stifle it too much. And like, yeah, we all have to be members of society, but that, you know, that looks different for everyone. And as little as you, the less you can change your child to fit the mold of, of what society wants, the better they're going to feel probably the better you're going <laughs> to better off. You're going to be as a parent because you're not going to be constantly fighting your kid to fit into this box or whatever. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I know that your mom really relies on helping families that she works with understand each other's overexcitabilities and how important that is. And I've seen that in my own work, in my own life, too. It, it does matter. Yeah, it's important to know that, especially if you have, you know, one family member who's a certain way and you have somebody who has kind of opposing mm-hmm. yeah. overexcitabilities, it can be really challenging. Mm-hmm. And that's where, like, my mom and I, we... we clash fairly often because we have very similar overexcitabilities and I think we potentiate and sometimes make worse like if if we're spinning off um you know not in a very good place then it you know it that those emotions bounce off of each other and those psychomotor overexcitabilities bounce off each other and we're moving and then you know there's just all kinds of it can definitely spiral itself up. So finding ways to decompress those overexcitabilities, get them satisfied so that you don't have members of the family, like just spinning each other up and up and up until, until things break down. Finding the theory obviously made a big difference to you um, and how you navigate the world and how you cope with your overexcitabilities and how you deal with sort of disintegrations and stuff. So what would you say to people um, who might sort of suggest the theory is a bit too difficult or, you know, not suitable for teenagers. You know, what what do you find is the importance and the value in the theory for someone your age? For me, like the minutiae, the specifics and the dynamisms and which level they occur at and, you know, that's all good stuff to know and I think there's definitely a place for it, specifically for like people like Chris and people like you, Emma, that 
it's, it's something that you really study and really dive deep into. Um, but for your average person, I think the really big takeaway um, is things break down before they get built up. I mean, you see it everywhere. It's kind of, um, it's a common theme across the whole universe. Like things fall apart and deconstruct before they reconstruct. And so if you're looking um, with this fatalistic view at yourself of like, I'm so depressed right now, like things are terrible. I'm falling apart at school. My room's a mess. Like my relationships are a mess. That's not the end. Like that's if, you know, all of those bad things are really just the, the, you know, the dirt from which, um, you know, the new you is going to grow. It's all, it's really about like seeing the good in the bad um, and, you know, kind of the yin yang quality. It's such a universal theory to me. Like, that's the thing is it fits into like, you know, Buddhist philosophy and it fits into like certain Christian teachings and it fits into like certain Hindu teachings. and, And I think that's kind of the important takeaway is that this is, and for like teenagers too, like, I think on a small scale, like all humans have some level of developmental potential there that we're born with. Like when we go through puberty for the vast majority of people, that's an uncomfortable experience. You're changing. Things are weird. It's awkward. Like you have weird social situations. Um, And some people who have higher overexcitabilities are going to have a much stronger experience than others. But I think being able to see in everyone that, the you know the the horrors of puberty are uh are necessary for us as to grow into the human beings that you know we're gonna grow into it's true that that is a major developmental period that we all go through just the typical life cycle yeah developmental periods that we all go through and it's true that i mean for everyone it's a struggle even Mm -hmm. though we all have different levels of developmental potential or Right. You know, it's true. But I agree with you that we need to do more searching for it in everybody rather than trying to be exclusionary or totally, you know, looking from that angle instead. Yeah. Because I think there's plenty of people who, you know, there's the people who have a strong overexcitabilities in a way that makes them, you know, maybe better than average at, at certain skills. But I think there's plenty of people who, are perfectly average and that's kind of their um dynamism that's the source of like their their shame or their dissatisfaction is like i'm not extraordinary enough or whatever and i think there's definitely something to be said there is that everyone you know what wherever you fall on the spectrum um of overexcitabilities and stuff has their own you know negative experiences and emotions and dynamisms that they can grow from that's right. We can all grow. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. So I'll say I'll somewhat disagree with Dabrowski that that it's set in stone that everyone has to be that most people are going to be level one. I think in a perfect world um, where we really have taken full advantage of the theory, I think there's going to be a lot more people in higher level disintegrations um, because more people are going to realize that their their pain or their, their uh, neuroses are something to grow from and something to learn from. That's the goal. That's what we <laughs> wish. That's the yeah. dream. I should say, is that people could see that. I mean, I have to say that as an American, it, 
I'm extremely discouraged at the moment with yeah. that potential, but it's a lovely mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the same thing. Like I, I try to see it as, you know, um, for those who aren't familiar with American politics, women's rights are not explicitly in the constitution apparently, but there is an amendment that has been on that, you know, has been around, but has yet to be ratified. All it takes is one more state to ratify it that would put women's rights explicitly in the constitution. And right now what I'm hoping is that this disintegration of taking away um, abortion rights as a right is going to be the catalyst to say, no, we need to pass the Equal Rights Amendment and say explicitly in the Constitution that women and the LGBTQ plus community deserves rights explicitly in the eyes of the entire government. Right. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that would be a good thing to come out of this bad thing. That was beautiful. I was clapping behind my mute button when you were talking <laughs> about the whole growing from the dirt and stuff. I'm like, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Lance. It's been great having you. And it's just fun and refreshing to have a young person with us to have this conversation. I mean, not that everybody's been old or anything, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's nice. It's I've, I've so enjoyed getting to know you and having conversations. And so I knew that I wanted to have you on the podcast and I appreciate that you joined us. Yeah, no, I'm glad I did because we always have such good conversations that are, you know, all really similar to what we just did. And I I think it's cool to get those out to a larger audience because I think we do reach some cool conclusions or at least always get good ideas and thoughts out there. So, yeah, it was it was a really cool experience. I'm glad you guys had me. Yeah, thanks heaps, Lance. It's has been great to have a young voice on the podcast and new perspectives and it's probably left me and Chris feeling decidedly old. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure to have you on with me. Well, thank you, Emma. I feel the same way. It's always a pleasure. I feel the same. And thank you to our listeners because we appreciate you too. So thank you for joining us on another episode. The Positive Disintegration Podcast is funded by the Dabrowski Centre. If you like what you've heard, please consider donating through the link in the show notes. And if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, give us a rating or leave a review. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Instagram. And until next time, keep walking the path to your authentic self.